0: Okay, this is Lee Scriven born 1959. Well, really, punk personally started for me, this might surprise a few people, back in April 1975. The reason for that is that, along with a good friend of mine, Geordie Walker, who we'll talk about a little bit later, but remember that name, Geordie Walker, because it's quite pivotal, really. We went to see Dr. Feelgood at the Roundhouse. Uh, it's strange, really, because um, what people, again, might find a bit strange, I hadn't heard Dr. Feelgood. I hadn't seen a picture of Dr. Feelgood. The only thing I think, I've just remembered the name now. It was called Thrills in the back of the NME. And for those of a certain age who remember it, and it was like a gossip column. It, you used to read it religiously, and it, this is a time when music papers ruled. You know, you had no internet, obviously everything. And I read personally every music paper, going sounds, NME, even Record Mirror, but NME was the one you, you went to on a Thursday morning, that was the beginning of your weekend, really. And what that so say, getting back to the this thrill section, what it was, it would be telling you, oh, know, Mick Jagger's bought a new Rolls-Royce or Keith Moon went down Oxford, you know, Oxford High Street dressed as a Nazi, and then it and it was just gossips. And what and suddenly in there was this band called Doctor Feelgood, saying Dr. Feelgood sort of had a riotous night at the Hope and Anchor, and he's just saying, oh, is that band? I've never heard of Dr. Philgood before. So it's quite clever how the writers were sort of just trying to edge them in somewhere in the paper. There's obviously some young journalists who had seen them, and there was this pub rock scene going on in 74, and Dr. Feelgood were leaders in that. And then the other thing I'd noticed in the paper was this advert for Dr. Philgood at the Roundhouse. It stood out, it was their logo. If you know Dr. Phil, but it's quite a distinctive logo. I think the band, whoever's still playing as Dr. Phil, would still use it. And I turned to my good friend, Julie Walker, who's a guitarist, I said, why don't we go? You know, We'd seen around us on the train every time we went to London, thinking that looks good. We went and it was on a Sunday, I remember that. What was different was when we arrived and we got outside the venue, one, it was heaving. We didn't expect that, I just thought I was just gonna walk in. There was queues, and the people were different to what the people were in Bletchley. There was already a look, a different, completely different look. There wasn't many hippies. There was always hippies at geeks, but they always went. But there wasn't that many, and it was mainly a lot of young people, shorter hair. With, to explain it, probably like the Ziggy's Stardust sort of cut, the sort of cropped mullet, but not a long mullet. But and they had cap sleeves shirts on and straight trousers. So there were me and Geordie standing there thinking we look fantastic in our great big 30-inch flares, three buttons. And I'm thinking, what? what's going on? So you had a sense that something was going on. And I said, go back. We hadn't seen Dr Feelgood. We hadn't seen a picture of them, hadn't heard them. And there was a support band on who were quite good at that time. Some people might remember them as a band called Fumble. No big light show. The Roundhouse was just like the Crawford Arms then, to be honest, the big Crawford Arms. And the lights went down. And then there's... And everyone just rushed in the room, and you could just feel it. They'd obviously seen them, obviously, you know. And people were taking you know, their jackets off and throwing them and whatever, and you're thinking, what's going on, you know? And, we, and then as soon as they came on, one, it was like, you're visually, what the hell is this? If you've never seen Wilco Johnson before in your life, it's quite a shock, you know, to see him and the way he held his guitar, and obviously the sound. And the place went absolutely bonkers. I mean, people, audiences of them days used to sit on the floor. To watch gigs and then politely clap no this was mayhem absolute mayhem in a joyous way and um i think if you've seen that bit in the film of the blues brothers where they go to the church and he you know uh, john belushi stands in and a big light comes down on him i'm sure there was a light on me and he just sort of going, oh what is this you know so you know two and a half minute songs three minute songs really powerful and it absolutely blew us away but we didn't say a word while the gig was going on. We were just transfixed in this vision and and the sound of it. So, you know, I'd liked bands like Led um, Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. I didn't really like Pink Floyd that much, but, you know, I appreciate whatever were Genesis, Stones, Who and Rod Stewart's and The Faces. But by 74, 75, they'd really gone up their own backsides, to be honest. And you, you couldn't really associate. And the music they were putting out wasn't as good as what they put out, four or five or even six years ago, especially The Who and, and, and The Stones. and the point I'm probably, I think people understand what I'm saying, they were unreachable. You couldn't really identify with them anymore. You appreciated them, but they they didn't connect with you in on an emotional way, as the way Dr. Feelgood just had. So Dr. Feelgood at that point, it I just sort of like swept the table. I didn't really want to know about the Rolling Stones and the Who. I'd sort of given up on them, even though I love the Who still to this day and the Stones, obviously. But at that moment in time, I brushed them aside and... It was like a steady drip then until perhaps the punk that people know, as in from that 75 through to 76, back in the night, the Dr. Feelgood single come out. It nearly tried. You know, see, it was proper underground. It was only the NME flying the flag for them, but they were bigger than what people were giving them credit for. Then their album Malpractice, which... Um, I've led to believe that was, um, who's the drummer out of Blondie No, The drummer out of Blondie got that, and he took that back and was playing it to the Ramones and all that. So they, that's feel good. We're a pivotal band in the NME. Suddenly, you started seeing this name, Sex Pistols. Probably first in this Thrills column. If you ever get a chance to see it, people, you know, try and find it. You might be able to find it, and you'll you get what I mean. And then there was this review. because I say, me and my friends, we read everything that was in them papers. And it's the famous review where um, Steve Jones says, We're not in the music, we're in the chaos. And the way the writer described this concert, thinking, Oh my God, thinking, Thank God I wasn't there. <laughs> it just sounded like a riot. And again, from there on in, you you read the papers, but you were reading between the lines. You were seeing things about new bands' names popping up. Then another pivotal moment I felt in punk was um, the Eddie and the Otwoods releasing Gloria. It's a live track, and it includes I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And if you ever hear it, it is. It is fantastic. It had taken what what Dr. Phil would do and probably taken a huge amount of speed, I think, and just, like, livened it up. Very Ramonesy, if you get the drift. And that was suddenly, they were, like, the hot ticket. That's now in 76. So it's gone from, like, the summer of 75 through to, I think that came out in August. The Damned came out as well, which we listened to, uh, and that was really exciting. It didn't, but it didn't engage as much as it should have. It was a brilliant single, brilliant single. That was, the, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm sure I'm saying that people shoot me down in flames if it is, the, I think it was the first British punk single, I'm not sure. But for me personally, this is my experience. Um, I was still into Eddie and the Hot Rods, and I'd read so much about the Sex Pistols. They were, by that time, there was interviews before they'd even got signed, and you could see the look of them. You're thinking, wow, these look amazing. Was, he was excited by the photography and the art and what was going on and what Malcolm McLaren was saying about all the old bands. You were laughing, and it was like, yeah, yeah. And what I was saying about you felt unattached, and they'd become aloof. And they were saying it in, in beautiful ways, very descriptive ways, that ways that you completely engaged with. And I remember going to Bedford and getting uh, really excited to get the Eddie and the Hot Rods album. And I think it's called Teenage Depression. And while I was there, I just went, oh, have you got, you haven't got the Sex Pistols new single by any chance, have you? And they went, yeah, yeah. And he got it and he's a black sleeve, if people know they're, they're like, I'm just black. Went back, came back from Bedford, got indoors. I thought, oh, before I put the album on, I'll have a listen to this Sex Pistols. I just didn't know what to expect. You can't imagine what you're just thinking. Well, well you yeah, I hadn't seen him. I wasn't lucky enough to be in the London select to see this band. I was thinking, okay, and then put it on. It's like, oh my god, okay. And then flipped it to the B side, which you always do. Oh my god, you know. And to be honest, I think I played about one track at the end of the other album. Just put it on one side and just kept playing it because it was. And as luck would have it, and I'm I'm sure I might be wrong. Memory, I'm 65, and memory can play tricks on you. But I'm I'm convinced that that night. They were on So It Goes. So i bought the single in the afternoon. And if you know about punk, it was the fam- famous Manchester and show, Tony Tony Wilson. It went national on certain I think um, the Midlands ITV carried it on at some ungodly hour up past 11 at night. But there they were. So the two getting the single in the afternoon, hearing them for the first time. And then lo and behold, literally eight hours, ten hours later, whatever, that evening, I've watched them for the first time. And I, I still say it's one of the most electrifying TV performances in rock and roll's history. You know, you can go back to uh, the Stones on Ready City Go, Who on Ready Go, yeah, and Top of the Pops is never really that. But that was like, that's it. You know, you know it was an absolute, again, an epiphany. Yeah, the same as the, the Dr. Feelgood one. And and again, then it was just that drip wasn't there. You know, the clash were in the papers. For ages and they looked fantastic there's no doubt about it you wanted to look like Mick Jones and you know Joe Strummer because they had they had the the punk look was really right a bang on fashion and their artwork Bernie Rhodes, their manager was a genius that album came out and that was the soundtrack to the summer really that, that album I still love that album to today it's so cohesive the symmetry of the sound and the and everything they were singing about was everything you wanted to sing about. You know, it was, you didn't want to sing about Dark Side of the Moons or however much I drink or whatever, you know, squeeze boxes, this was like from the street. I think punk means different things to different people. But for me, it just meant it, it wasn't the fashion. It was the music in a way. It was the look and it was the face, but more important than all that, I think what punk meant to me, there was no rules. At last, if you if you want to be in a band, then be in a band. You don't have to. Tr- you, you were sort of frightened by the greatness of the musicianship of people like, yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. The star, you think, I can never do that. So I might as well not do it. Whereas on this scale, when you'd seen people like Dr Feelgood and the Piss, I think, yeah, I can do that. Right, let's do it. And I love that that um, it opened up people and just made encouraged them to go off and do whatever they were. and not just in. Not just music, I think the punk ethos of that stretched into the, the, the whole of the arts. You know, if you want to be a graphic designer, be a graphic designer, you ain't got to go to college, just do it. You know, and if you want to be a writer, do a fanzine. You know, and I think, I think people like um, Jamie Reed, famous artist for the, the Sex Pistols, Julie Burchill, obviously DJ John Peel, and um, Don Letts, the filmmaker, I think they were just as inspirational to the generation I was in at that time were in that kind of music as the bands. Because outside the bands, you could see people latching on and doing things they wanted to do, as much as as the bands were doing. You know, you could. They were telling you really, and they were leading by example. Like, the Buzzcocks and other. You know, make your own records. That's when I loved it. Before the the big boys got in, and you know, put on your own gigs. Like we're, we're probably talking about. You know, don't wait for someone. You know, go and do it yourself. Hire a hall. Do it in a back of a pub. Do it back of a, anywhere you want to do it. Just go and do it. Which I think is regarded. Oh, I mean, it must be the. Um, Bletchley, Milton Keynes, first ever punk band, and they were called The Fix, and um, I can't remember how I got the gig, actually, that's a bit embarrassing, but and, uh, perhaps they knew of me or whatever, but it probably came through a music shop ad or word of mouth, and they were called The Fix, and basically they were made up of the lovely family, uh, West Bletchley, uh, called the O'Hallorans, who so I'm still proud and pleased to be friends with to this day and it's glenn brent and uh, larry joe is a saxophone player but he wasn't in it because it was punk it wasn't this was a punk band uh, it was a great band yeah i loved it i loved playing with them brent O'Halloran was a great songwriter and glenn was a, was the ultimate front man he, he still is he's got that charisma when he walks in a room and he had it all and they looked fantastic and they're really funny guys just talking about doing gigs you know we couldn't there wasn't really anywhere to play in Milton Keynes at that time in a traditional mode. There wasn't a, a Crawford Arms, shall we say, or Fox and that, you know. There were cover bands playing everywhere, but they weren't going to welcome Bletchley's first ever punk band. But locally, I was a regular, as I like my owl, at the old swan in Woofton. And there was a barman there called a ball. And um, I run it past, I said, oh, we can't get gigs. And he said, well, you can play here if you want. I went, what? And they had this great pit in the Swan, and it's still there. The old Swan at done, if you want to go and do some tracing, some punk history in Milton Keynes, if you go in the pub to the right, there's a pit where there used to be a little bar billiards table. We cleared that out. And what Bobby did was, was a masterstroke. Beer was quite expensive then, probably as expensive as it is now going into a pub, but he got a pills promotion. So he had pills at half price. The gig was not advertised, nothing in the papers, obviously nothing on the radio. It was all word of mouth. And um, it was absolutely fantastic. You know, we thought there would be a few mates turn up, but it just seemed like the entire alternative society of Milton Keynes descended on the Swan, the barman, was ecstatic. He must have made a fortune. And we played in this little pit, and there was people there, you know, Russell Tofield was there, and Jay, and there was, people are still, you know, we went on to become friends for a long, long time. And they were looking down at the band, throwing beer at us and everything, which was quite funny. Because I think Russell Toefield threw a sort of pint of beer over me, and I wasn't that that pleased at the time. But then it fell on my drum kit, and every time I hit my drum kit, it exploded with the beer going up. Yeah, so it looked like a stage act. And I thought, oh yeah, I like this. This is great. Thanks, Russell. You yeah. know, it was a really good night. It's a fantastic time in music. We're talking sort of seventy nine and and punk was really starting to expand. It had taste gone from the three called powerhouses of the Clash and um, the Sex Pistols, and people were really t- starting to musically I- expand. And I think Brent wanted to do the same, and much to my, you know, annoy not um, to me, I didn't want to, I still wanted to be the Sex Pistols and the Clash. So I, I we left, you know, we left on pretty good terms. I was at the hump that I didn't want to do what I wanted to do, and he probably had the hump that I didn't want to do what he wanted to do, but we've totally remained good friends. Then basically, it was a, l- a lull really, I didn't do too much. Um, and then uh, along came fictitious. I must adjust, I must adjust! I was just sitting in my house watching, I don't know, That's Life, I think, on a Sunday night, and there was a knock at the door. And there was Tiggles, with, um, uh, Tiggles by the door holding a cassette with some people in a car looking that looked pretty dodgy think it must have been Simon Donberman who drove in there, his brother. And he said, oh yeah, you're, oh, Brent, Brent told me, you know, you're a drummer, do you fancy drumming for us? And I went, well, yeah, I don't know, don't know, what, well, what is it? And he just shoved a cassette in me and he said, have a listen to that if you fancy it, I'll call you tomorrow. And uh, I went straight in and uh, didn't really want to watch That's Life, put the cassette on and it was absolutely brilliant. I didn't know what again to expect. Some of the songs you may remember are Must Adjust and um, I'm not sure if Whiteface Boys was on there, but it was enough to go, oh, yes, please, because it was a bit, it was aggressive and it was, and the lyrics were really good. Yeah, three nights late, I was at Stantonbury Youth Club and um, people say that, you know, chemistry is, is important in bands. And I think the chemistry in that, in the uh, fictitious lineup was, was spot on. There's some eccentrics in there, like Biffo, the keyboard player, and Trevor, the original bass player, who sadly passed away, and then Jamie, and Pat Milner-Tiggles and myself. It just really gelled. It really gelled, and it was, it was really enjoyable. And then, you know, I got to experience things. Again, I'd only ever dreamt about, i.e. going into a recording studio. I can remember going into the um, recording studio in Stoney, where we all went. I thought I was in Abbey Road, you know. I was, I, was, I was living the dream, you know. <laughs> in there, did her songs. And, um, yeah, it, it was really good. So Teagles was, again, like Brent and was a was a great songwriter. His lyrics were just fantastic. And uh, I think Pat wrote most of the songs with him. And uh, they had some great songs. Um, I'll say White Face Boys, I'm in Fashion with the 1980s, um, Devotion, and Confu- I was just like... Uh, yeah, this is it. And I was I live in the dream, really. And at that time, other bands started coming through as well. And one of the clever things, I think Tiggles mentioned it on his podcast, that more by default, I think, that he did was that we rehearsed in youth clubs. Sound acoustics probably were horrendous compared to what you can rehearse in, in today. But it was clever because people were running youth clubs like that we were older and they wanted mentors for the youngsters who were coming in. And it it worked, and it worked. And we played at Stanton, we did at Stantonbury. And then, I don't know why, we moved camp to um, Dermot Drive in Bletchley, where we had a back room there. And Mark Page, who went on to be a great musician and a great friend, you know, he used to come in as a little 14-year-old and he'd started putting a kit up for me and things like that. He's my roadie, you know, I'm embarrassed to say. But it was that kind of thing, and we grew... And what well then by the time we did I think a f- proper first gig at the Crawford, again like the fix, we were astounded, the place was packed. Of course it was packed with all the all the kids who had been coming over seeing us rehearse, heard we be doing a gig and they'd come and see us. So that was a clever move, if you get I think if we'd have just rehearsed in a farm or something, I don't think we'd have had the following. And then again, as Tiggle sort of mentioned, we sort of went into the along with a lot of other bands and a lot of other artistic people at the um Pear Tree Bridge centre and that was great there was about four rooms i think we all fought for one room i think there was one room that was the best deemed the best but dancing counterparts as uh, the dancing counterparts came out of the fix transistors i think brent went from the fix to the transistors and then developed into the dancing counterparts and they were like royalty, they were so good. Everyone was like, oh, dancing canapes, boo, They're so good, but you had to respect that they were brilliant. You know, they were still brilliant. And they seemed to always get the best room and we had scrapes to, to get whatever we could. But uh, great place. And I think Paul Salmon, a photographer, used to come in. So again, what I was touching on about people doing other things around, around the music, not actually being in bands, but being artistic around it, you, you felt it in the Pear Tree Bridge Centre. And then that great thing that the police did, I don't think people forget, really, it was the police, who were a bit punky at that time. You all knew they weren't really a punk band, but they they wrote some good songs and had that sort of punk attitude when they first started. Proven, by I think they came to play at the Bowl and they donated a lot of money to the youth club to to produce an album, which I thought was amazing. I still think that's a great thing that they did because it really, you would know, and a lot of other people know, that really engaged us all. Suddenly we had something that we, you know, we all wanted to make a record. None of us could afford to make a record. It was still very expensive, then recording. It was so expensive in the 70s. I don't know how Tiggles did it. I mean, he did record a lot. He must have used all his earnings to pay for it. You know, we all chipped in a fiver, but he must have paid for it all. So for the police to do that was really good, really good. And um, and that was a great time, you know, because then we went off to London as fictitious, Um Again, you say you live in the dream, I and mean, you are living the dream sometimes when you're in a band. And uh, Tiggles had found this recording studio just off Carnaby Street. So we got on a train, got down to Carnaby Street, and it wasn't Trident Studios, which people might think it was. I wish it would have been, but great studio. But I, I was in a drum booth, and it was bigger than a toilet. You could just about get a drum kit in it. And we are all in booths. And uh, Testament to the band, which I look back on now, it shows you how much we just lived it. Because we just rehearsed nearly four times a week that Blind, as in we couldn't see each other, we could only hear each other on the headphones. We did like three songs for the for the album and I listen back now thinking, wow, okay, that that's pretty good, in one take, as in not just the guitars and then Tiggles. And I remember Tiggles giving us, there's a lot of money, I think it was like, 10 quid, or it might have even been more because he didn't want us in the studio when he was singing. So he gave us 10 quid, and we, it was like Christmas, yay, Biffo with 10 quid, you know. So he always went around the pub and, like, yeah, yeah. and of course we'd have so many beers when we come back in, yeah, it's brilliant to you, let's go, you know. So he got what he wanted, we had no interference. Um, and that was great, again, to, to have that experience of uh, getting on a train. Going to London, yeah, West End, Carnaby Street, down a little booth in my brilliant studio. Was yeah, uh, I'm indebted to Fictitious for giving me that experience. And yeah, from there on in, the album came out, didn't it? And um, Na Pop, I think, stole the show quite rightly. And um, yeah, and uh, Dance covered it well. And Fictitious came out of it all. I think as everybody did, you know, it was great. Um, we we were gutted we didn't get played on John Peel, but he can play everyone. I understand why he was playing the other ones, because they were better songs, you know, fair play to them. So that, that scene, I think, really set the scene for Milton Keynes for, for many a year, really, I think for about 20, 25 years, you know. How people helped each other. Yeah, there was rivalries, as in artistic rivalries, but bottom line is, if someone needed a bass amp for a gig, you lend them a bass amp, you lend them your drum kit, or or you went and saw them. You just went and saw bands were going to watch other bands to give their support, and that was, that was, that was really important fictitious sort of faded out as bands do yeah you are chasing the dream the ultimate dream of being a pop star you know never mind what punk says everybody wanted to be a pop star i mean if you look at the clash some of the things they said and then you get to london calling you go oh you did want to be the beatles after all then you know it's quite funny you know so uh, uh, so we did want that and you know i think we'd done some gigs where you're on this ridiculous sort of uh, belief that an A and R man is going to go to Peckham from EMI Records, you know, in Sony Square, Soho Square, he's going to travel all the way to Peckham to see an unknown band, you know. So it's, oh, I didn't turn up, you know. So and uh, we we knew that the ghost was up, I think, and I think Tiggle's wanted to go back and. Uh, do some more studying. And uh, I think we did one last gig at Leighton Buzzard. Can't remember, it wasn't Buzzard at all. Remember, it was a great gig. I'm glad it was a, a really good one. It was really busy and we played really well. In a way, I think we played probably the best we played because we all knew it. I think we all knew that this was going to be the last time we were going to be playing for a while. And uh, But we stayed good friends. I'm so glad some bands, I've read a lot of autobiographies, can have horrendous arguments and throwing people out of a van on the M1 on the way home from a gig and all that. And we didn't do that. I quite, I was quite pleased about that. But that scene, that, to give people an idea, it was quite difficult in those periods I'm talking about. 77 in Bletchley, you, you couldn't really go down the road dressed as Johnny Rotten. You didn't see anyone. I don't remember ever seeing anyone. You saw him in the papers and you knew it was going on in London. But in in the, in their kind of areas and in, the may have been Northampton. Northampton was a bit more edgy and Luton, but New Town, Bletchley Old Town, I think it it would have stood out. You know if you had really gone for it, but what you got you first indication that people were in the same kind of culture you as the trousers. So if you saw people with straights on, it's like oh, okay, and you sort of gave them a nod. As you know, when you've got a mini car and a mini comes past, you put your headlights on. So if you were walking down Queensway and you got and there was a guy in a donkey jacket, you think, yeah, okay, and then and he obviously didn't have all long hair waving around, and he had all he had on was again below that was just some drain feet. Yeah, you sort of go okay, so you you know, and you'd love to end up sort of meeting them in record shops. Record shops were, and probably music stores, should we say, absolutely vital because that's where you put your poster up. To tell people about gigs and that's where you heard about new bands being formed or you know someone especially in Milton Keynes because you've got to remember there was always an influx of people arriving you know I can remember Graham D just arriving on the scene like yesterday I don't know what was it Pottersbury answer or Billy Bragg you know but he was a punk then <laughs> you can't imagine Graham D being a punk but he was because he had that attitude and he had a guitar and he started supporting gigs and as you had this influx of people, and that was the only way you could find out what was really going on. Yeah, you know, the Gazette did some good stuff in the papers of the day. Now and again, they covered little stories. But that, record stores and, and that. There was never, I don't remember there ever being a fanzine until the spot arrived in the mid-80s, which is, I find that quite surprising Now, actually. I might be wrong. There was Don't Dictate, wasn't there, in Newport Pagnell? Sorry, I'll take that back. There was one, Don't Dictate. Yeah, that was the one I did. Sorry, apologies. Yeah, so it was difficult to be, what people may look back and go, not many pictures of real punks in the early 70s. No, there wasn't, because it was socially difficult. One, you couldn't really get the clothes. So it was really homemade, and it, you know, not all of us wanted to go. You, you couldn't really go out in homemade clothes in Fletcher. It was only really the pubs and out around the city you could go. And you, know, it was, you were going in dangerous territory if you walked into any pub in Milton Keynes in 77, dressed like Johnny Rotten. <laughs> you might not come out too well, you know, so... So what people did, I think, similar, bizarrely, how we are in 2024, is that you socialise around people's houses. You know, you went round, I can remember the, you know, the record sleeves coming out to roll homemade cigarettes, shall we say. And it was just, and that was the sort of, and people having just, not parties, but you just say come round to so-and-so's having a, you know, come round to so-and-so's tonight. I remember that fictitious. We just went round as a band to a lot of people's houses. And it's nice. You got to know a lot of people more than you would perhaps in a, in a pub environment. So that was nice. There was definitely this big alternative culture growing and growing in Milton Keynes because Milton Keynes is very mainstream. And the mainstream always wins. You know, you always, up until recently, you'd always have a Chicago Rock Cafe or a, the traditional nightclub tramps, wasn't it? And all, the, all these kind of things. And that didn't appeal to us. It was, one, you, you had to dress like an estate agent to get into them, and we were not going to dress like a estate agent. So you created your own culture. Muzak's was a good club that Bill Billings ran, famous artist in Milton Keynes. And he was, like a lot of, you know, not hippies, you know, but some, you know, some, a lot of the hippies, I think, that did sort of... Um, identify with the early punk scene, and they liked what people were doing, they knew it needed changing, and Bill was one of them. He go Fictitious, a really good gig in New Bradwell at Musex. Yeah, from there on in, um, it fizzled out. Then, I suppose you could say, I joined Eddie Stanton, and if you know Eddie Stanton, he's a brilliant um, solo songwriter, really. He needed a band, over to put his songs over, and he wrote the, um, the famous song, Milton Keynes, We Love You Like F We Do, and you know what the F stands for, and... Uh, he got national publicity, I think, for proposing to uh, slaughter a, a guinea pig in in the city centre. It's <laughs> just his manager, Chris France. I never got on to know him, uh, but it never happened. But he did not get a lot of publicity out of it. It was very clever. And I joined Eddie, and um, again he was punk. He was. Uh, he, so he, this is my point. Like, he didn't dress like a punk, you know, but he loved punk music, and he had this punk attitude that like, I'm going to write these sorts. Very original material. The best, and Eddie, don't don't hurt me when I say this. You know, to give a, an average punter the idea of it's very Lloyd Cole and the commotion. If we get it, and way before Lloyd Cole and the thing, this, I think that was the problem that Eddie was doing stuff that if he'd have done it three years later and just come out, he would have he would have definitely got there because he did get a record deal. That strive that I always wanted to to get a record deal came to fruition with Eddie. And uh, that was quite funny actually because I was working for British Telecom at the time and I really liked being a telephone engineer. But not, for, not because it was great being a telephone engineer, it's just all the people I was working with were just an absolute riot. You know, it was just great time, great friends. And then when, we, when I got the gig to be, be the drummer with Eddie and uh, they were working out a tour. And the manager just rang me up and said, "Yeah, well, when you're going to give your notes in?" And I went, "Well, what do you mean? I'm not giving my notes in." He's going, "No, no, yeah, this is it. This is rock and roll now. You've got, to, you've got to give your notes in." And I'm thinking, oh, "I've just bought a house with a wife." And I'm thinking, "No," and I said. "Well, what are you on about? Why have I got to do that? You know, rehearsals are not till seven o'clock at night." And I'm like, "Where are you going?" And he sort of reeled off some like, "Well, Birmingham." I said, "Well, I can get there for like." Yeah, you know, i finished finish work at half three, so I can get to Birmingham by six if you want. You know, and I just put them off, you know. so if I wasn't... I was quite clever, I think, in a way, not to go totally for... Dream. If I'd have had a lesser job, I would have. Yeah, it's great with Eddie, but what you realise is that when you do get that record deal, then the real work starts. You know, you're not playing locally anymore. You're going off to towns and uh, cities <laughs> no-one's ever heard of you before. You're third on the bill, etc., etc., and it's extremely hard work. But again... um. We had a good six months to a year doing stuff, and it just it just wouldn't happen for it. He put some great singles out. They're out there on Spotify. If you ever listen, Tales from the Raj, "Young and the Free." Um, we played with Barhouse, uh, Barhouse. If I'm saying it wrong, excuse me. Um, at the Lyceum, that was great, and that's that's a funny journey because as Tiggle said, with Fictitious, my first gig, which I should have mentioned, with Fictitious, with Barhouse at Newport Pagnell Youth Centre. So, in the space of like three years. They've done extremely well, and I've done bad to come back and support them at a better venue, if you get my drift, the truth. Both had a nice little journey there. There's probably far more lucrative and uh, you know, famous than what mine was. And then a few years later, um, uh, Har, I'm going to mention that. Uh, people say oh, they're a punk band, but it goes back to that attitude. Yeah, I think Har oh, we're a punk band. The way we approached it, we had two drummers. You know, most people didn't dare have two drummers, and that was... Oh, you got to be careful what you're saying now, it was inspired by Gary Glitter obviously the band not the, what the person stands for always wanted to have a band with two drummers in yeah Mark Page I say, was a roadie and a great friend and had been drumming with NA Pop and then my brother who was only I think about 15 at the time and then Dylan Jevons who was in NA Pop 2000 uh, with Kaz is someone I really admired from afar and always wanted to work with him and I worked with him and Pat Milne from Fictitious and uh, really good live band. I don't think we had as good songs as what Fictitious says. We tried, but funny enough, I go right back to the beginning now, inspired by my friend, Geordie Walker, who after that um, infamous night at Dr. Feelgood, if you recall what I was saying earlier, I went with Geordie to watch Dr. Field and we both said, this is it. I'm going to be a rock and roll star now. And lo and behold, Geordie Walker did become a rock and roll star because he, um, he joined Killing Joke. By luck, I don't think he mind me telling me. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Um, he answered an ad in Melody Maker, which most people did. Um, went for an interview, uh, met uh, Jazz Coleman, the, the sort of the, the leader of getting um, Jack and Georgey. Said they basically just argued while right they didn't play the note. He hadn't took not a guitar. He just went and met him. Um, they fell about laughing because he liked Sensational Alex Harvey Band, who were quite big at the time, and they thought that was hilarious. And he thought, "Oh, blown it. And um, he had packed his bags, he was just living in a little um, block of flats, and the block of flats only had a phone at the end of the hallway, and he'd never used his phone, never asked a phone. He'd literally packed his bag, got his guitar, and he was coming home, and the phone rang, and it was Jazz, and he said, ''Yeah, you're in.'' And that was it, that's how he got the gig. He hadn't even played a note. Jazz sort of knew, I think, because he'd argued back, because Geordie was strong beer, so, no, he, he wasn't having it. and They weren't liking Zell Clemenson, and, and so he was giving it some. Just so said to him, you're the only one who argued back, you know, and gave a bit of stick. So we thought you'd be the right guy. And then he plugged in and uh, off they went, you know, that remarkable sound. And it was very, you know, blew our heads off, you know, back here as me personally, you know, he was just, I was in awe of him and still am, you know, what he achieved. Yeah, so there it goes. So it's, um, yeah, and Har. We were still in awe of Geordie, Pat was as well. I think he dyed his hair the same and had his hair cut the same as Geordie. <laughs> so uh, he had a lot of answer for Geordie. I think we were very influenced by Killing Jack, perhaps too much. And then the last one, now I know people are gonna have a go at me, I think, and have a shout. I think the last, probably it was the last band I put together, but I think it was the ultimate punk band was The Blues Collective. Because we knew it was an 18-piece covers band. Ooh, you know, how dare he do a covers band basically inspired by the Blues Brothers yeah there it is in itself an 18 page band not doing it for money not doing it to become famous don't want a record deal just want to have the crack it really did and and we only knew how to play punk we'd only been brought up on it I should have known better I was a bit older than the Dillons and the Mark Pages and Pat Mills and Adrian Street who was in it as well but we that the punk was still in our blood, so we were taking like classic soul songs, and we had Mark Evans on bass effects, Exodus Dance as well. You know, we were taking these punk um, soul songs, but we were playing them in a punk style. You know, just like really aggressive, really fast. Uh, our set was like a Ramones. we didn't breathe. You know, didn't no breath between songs. We actually installed our own bar on stage so we could get a drink quickly, so there was no delay in keeping the the stuff going. You know. Brass section, eight-piece brass section. And I remember George Webley, a famous um, local musician and entrepreneur, you know, fan- artist, fantastic guy, absolutely screaming at me. What are you doing? Why, why don't you just have eight people in the And I go, well, what do want eight people? Why have eight people when you can have 18, you know? So that's where my sort of punk journey musically ended. But as I said earlier, the ethos of that 75 to 77 of, you know, what was the famous... Uh, Here's three chords go out and form a band in Mark Smith, wasn't it? The the great fanzine, the the ultimate statement. But what that was saying was really, to me, not about the chords, is if you want to do something, go and do it. Just do it. Don't hang around thinking you're not qualified, because you're obviously not, but do it. And that has stayed with me to this day. You know, I'm still lucky enough to be fit and able to make some films and write books, you know, I have no right to do that. And some people have seen my films and read my books and would agree, but at least I've done it, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to do it. And that's what I try and pass on to people. I find people, especially with the social media side of things are very scared and very frightened of getting criticism because it can be fierce, but just take it. I think any true artist, I don't call myself an artist. If you're going to do something, There's going to be good or bad, either side of it. Just sort of learn to deal with it. And the more you do, and you always learn from anything you do. And I think that punk ethos is um, still with us and survived through decades, you know. I look at Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. To me, they were punk bands. I really liked them straight away. You could just tell they they had an attitude and they had a different way of approaching things. Um, Nirvana, you know. Yeah, punk band, yeah, they were signed up. They were American, they were massive. Huge, but underneath it all, they I mean, were the remotes. Yeah, yeah, they were just brilliant. They had a brilliant sound, yeah. And um, even Blur, really, Oasis, again, Oasis definitely had that punk attitude. Blur had perhaps a slightly one, but still, they wanted to be in control. You could go on, I suppose. Arctic monkeys. And I think in the world we're living in now, I might just, I was just knocking it a little bit, you know, social media, Spotify, YouTube i mean, home recording. I don't think there's anything to prevent anyone from, you know, artistically expressing themselves. Uh, oh, that's great. You know, I wish we'd have had Spotify around. For them days, we might have a fictitious album now to listen to, you know, or whatever, because once you put something on Spotify, it's there forever. You know, people might knock these, some of these uh, social media platforms, but I think it's how you use them. And I think they're, they're a great tool, tool for people. So uh, really my, uh, my memories, and great memories, punk you know the punk days in this in bletchley and around milton Keynes so thanks